Thanks, Brian, for that very cheery reading this morning. <laughs> and welcome, everyone. Uh, nothing better to start a Sunday morning with than wake up, oh, drunkard, right? That's a really good word. And so uh, we are looking at John 2, and the miracle in John 2 uh, that we're considering is it turning water into wine, and so this is a very appropriate text, as we'll see in a moment. But we'll start by praying together, and then we'll look at the text. Father, thanks that we can gather here today, and thank you that your desire is to shape us to be people of hope in a world where increasingly there's kind of this existential awareness that the joy has dried up. And so I pray, Father, that you'd equip us toward that end this morning, speak to us, both personally and collectively, and we'll thank you for that as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we're, we're looking at uh, this miracle that is one of the more famous miracles in the Bible this morning, water being turned into wine. And at the outset, there's a word that I want to remind you of its definition. It's the word crush. Uh, the word crush, if you just look it up in a, in a dictionary, an English dictionary, means to squash, to squeeze, to press, to compress, to, and, or to pulverize, Right? And the word is used in the Bible in a few places, one of which it's used regarding Christ, another of which is used regarding us, we're, we're, we've been crushed by the problems of life, and uh, it's used regarding the creation of wine. For wine to become wine, the grape, of course, uh, needs, to be, needs to be crushed. So we're going to be looking at this, at this miracle uh, this morning, and uh, the the word crushed is a significant word, but there's two other significant word, like words that frame this. One is uh, the word miracle. It's in John 2, it says Jesus did this miracle. John uses a word for miracles that really means sign miracle. In other words, every miracle that is in the Gospel of John is teaching us something about Jesus' character. Uh, so uh, it says in John 20, these particular miracles have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So there are sign miracles in this, and this is the first of the sign miracles. Second, um, these miracles are pointing to Jesus as the Christ. And we use the word Christ here at Bethany and in Christianity all the time, but I don't think that we really ever pause to think about what the word means. Jesus the Christ. Jesus, like Christ is not Jesus' last name. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's, it's just not true. Uh, we say Jesus Christ, but uh, Christ literally means the anointed one. And if you go into the Old Testament, you see that uh, if you're a prophet or a priest or a king, prophets, priests, and kings are anointed with oil, Right? So Christ is the anointed one, but he's not an anointed one as prophets, priests, and kings were in the Old Testament because there were many. Christ is the anointed one with a definite article. In other words, of all the anointed ones, Christ is a, is a kind of a cut above. If in the Old Testament you were a prophet, you were not a priest or a king. If you're a king, you weren't a prophet or a priest. Jesus is above all because he is what? Prophet, priest, and and king, that makes him kind of this climactic expression of anointing. And it means that Christ's authority extends beyond Israel, beyond local tribes and nations. Christ's authority is cosmic, right? So uh, it says in Genesis 49, when Jacob is giving a blessing to his 12 sons, uh, when he speaks to Judah, from whom comes Christ, this is what he says. Uh, he, he, he says in uh, Gen uh, Genesis chapter 49, 
that the scepter, the, like the king's staff, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations are his. So Jesus is going to rule over all nations. This is this notion of a cosmic king. And in 1 John, we're told that Jesus absorbed the sin of all creation. That makes Jesus the cosmic priest. So Jesus has this, like, universal authority. And then in this universal authority, he's revealing himself in John with sign miracles. He turns water into wine. He feeds 5,000. He heals a man born blind. And in each case, there's kind of a double application that you see. But Christ is being revealed as king or priest or prophet in these miracles. And in each case, he, he's giving this cosmic revelation of his identity, and he's fixing a problem. Oh, you're hungry? Uh, let me feed 5,000 with a loaf of bread. Oh, you ran out of wine at your party. Well, let me fix that. Oh, you're dead? <laughs> let me raise you to life. So, like, Jesus fixes problems at a very practical level, and in so doing, reveals these cosmic truths about his identity. Now, all this is going to make a great deal of sense as we get into it, because in this miracle... Christ is revealed as the, as the king who transforms both the mundane and the tragic into not just blessing, but the capacity to bless. Because all of us are called, were created not just to get by in life, but to be a blessing. So this is revealed in what I call a three-act play. There's three acts in this, in, this, um, in this story in John chapter 2. There's a problem. Uh, there's a dialogue between Jesus and Mary, Mary and the servants, the servants and the head waiter. And then there's a solution. So we're going to look at the... At the, at the problem, the dialogue, the solution. Act one is the problem here. The problem, as we all, as we all know, if we know the story, is uh, there's no wine at the, at the wedding. Now, I'm just going to read it, and then I'll explain why this is like a really big deal, okay? So we're in John chapter 2, like beginning to read in verse 1. So let me just go there. Luke, John, there we go. <laughs> John chapter 2. Um, it is what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cain of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Along with Jesus and his disciples, they were invited to the wedding. And then the wine ran out. Okay? So that's the, that's the plot in this story. The wine ran out. Now, um, that's a big deal. I'm going to quote here um, from one commentator who explains why this is a big deal. So the setting is a village wedding feast, as you know. And in Palestine, a wedding was a huge occasion because Palestine is not a rich part of the world. And in the midst of poverty, when you really would cut loose and celebrate, it would be at the wedding. And, and the ceremony in, in Jewish wedding lore, the ceremony took place late in the evening after a feast. So we usually have a reception after the ceremony. They had a meal and then the ceremony and then in our weddings today, after the ceremony and the reception, the, the couple takes off and we throw rice at them or dynamite or whatever. We throw things at them. And then they, and then they leave and then they go off and they have their honeymoon. Well, not, that's not how it worked then, okay? And this was, makes it significant. So what happens is uh, meal, ceremony, and then... When the couple goes home, they're followed by all the guests. They're all carrying torches, so there's a parade. We have a remnant of that today. I remember when I got married in 1979, I took off in my uh, little Mustang, and some uh, vandals had written just married on the 
window, and they tied a bunch of cans to the back. And then when we took off, we didn't just take off. Half the guests followed in their cars, honking horns, right? So similar, like that comes from this. Only, only in this case, the couple goes home and all the guests go to their house as well, right? And then they, they don't take off for a honeymoon. They have open house for a week. Imagine that. You get married. And the first thing you do is you have an open house for a week, right? So anybody can come for an entire week at any time and drop in on you. What a great platform creating, for creating intimacy. I don't know why that tradition didn't die, right? Uh, so anybody can come at any time. And then you're supposed to provide food and wine. So that's a thing. But providing wine is symbolically significant. And so let's, we're going to look at this problem of no wine both from a local perspective and a, and a kind of a cosmic perspective. So for the local perspective, for the Jewish wedding feast and the particularly this open house afterwards, wine is essential. There's a rabbinic saying, where there's no wine, there's no joy. Result, running out of wine is a big deal. It is not at all like if you run out of Doritos next weekend at your Final Four party. Whatever, right? Go get some more at the store. No one cares. But if you run out of wine and a guest comes and you cannot provide them with wine, it's viewed as an omen. This marriage is doomed. In other words, this couple is clearly showing here that they have no capacity to bless others. And it becomes kind of an indictment on the couple's capacity. So to run out of wine was symbolic that a couple would run out or had run out of their capacity to bless others. A central reason couples marry in the first place is to increase their capacity to bless others. So here's a couple, and they've very quickly moved in the span of a few days from hope and celebration and joy to this kind of desperate situation of emptiness whereby they feel that their capacity to bless has been lost. They are literally, to quote uh, Jackson Brown, running on empty, right? Like it's over. They don't have any resources. And who in the room hasn't been there? And I'm not now talking about wine. I'm talking about you have lost your capacity to bless because you are running on empty. Has anyone ever had that happen? 1993, I'm at a conference. I'm on the verge of burnout. The guy speaking goes, some of you in the room are very tired. If you're not burnt out yet, you're about to be burnt up right? And I started to cry because I knew he was talking about me. I didn't have any more resources. I've been working seven day weeks, taking, you know, violating the Sabbath. I'm running on empty. Uh, uh, 1996, my first year here, running on empty. It was the hardest year of my life, the first year of Bethany. This church grew from 300 to 200 in the first year. And uh, I wasn't a popular guy with anybody. And for somebody who likes approval, it was, it was just super difficult, hard on my marriage, et cetera, et cetera. I was, I was empty. Uh, my wife and I uh, titled 2007 the year of death because so many friends and family members died in that year. And it had this uh, draining effect on us whereby we felt like we had no joy and our capacity to bless others had kind of dried up. So all of us have been there at various times kind of running on empty. And your emptiness could be financial, could be physical, could be emotional, could be vocational, could be spiritual. But whatever the reason, the result is all often the same. We're running on empty. In other words, we don't have anything to give and there are people needing what we have to give them, but what we have is nothing. 
Like, we're supposed to give hope, and we're filled with sorrow. We're supposed to give strength, and, and, and we're weak. We're supposed to give energy, and we're, and we're worn out. We're supposed to give joy. Like, we just don't have the capacity. We might not articulate it that way, but that's the reality, because the truth is, each one of us isn't just called to receive blessings from God. We're called to be so full that we become kind of rivers of living water, you know, bursting forth, offering uh, comfort and thirst and, uh, excuse me, comfort and, and, and satisfaction and joy to other people. So, running on empty, it happens to all of us. I got back from uh, being overseas, and very early last week, I realized I had double booked for an appointment later in April, and I was so tired at the moment that I realized I was double booked that my first reaction was just to curse everything around me. Like, why, why do you need me? Why do you need me? Why does anyone need me? I hate all of you, right? <laughs> Go away, right? I, like, I, do not, I, I, I don't want to be obligated to serve anyone. I, don't have, I can't even meet one need, and there's two people that want me on the same night. No, 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 no to all of you, right? I'm going to just go live in my woods and drink coffee. That's it. And then, you know, my second reaction was to curse myself. How can you be so stupid? You double book. Richard, you don't pay attention to details. And, like, you should just quit anyway because this is who you are. You're just administratively worthless. Stop, you know. Has anyone ever been there? Like, like you just, like, you're, first you're mad at others, then you're mad at yourself. And then finally, like, I inhaled, calmed down a little bit. And I prayed, and I said, here's the, here's the real problem, God. I'm, I'm just wiped out. I'm tired. I'm jet-lagged. I'm tired. I've been working hard, and, and I, I just don't have enough wine in me. Not literal wine. I, like, I don't have the capacity right now to serve and be present for everyone that needs me. I just don't have it. Well, that's this story. So if you've ever felt that way, this is a good story for you. But there's more. There's a cosmic significance to the story. Remember, this is a sign miracle. It has another layer of significance. Israel as a nation is just like this couple. Wines and grapes, or excuse me, wine and grapes were always signs of blessing for Israel. Numbers 12, uh, when the spies go into the promised land, they bring back a gigantic cluster of grapes, sign of blessing. Deuteronomy 28, if you obey God, says God, the vine will be blessed. What uh, Brian read, book of Joel, uh, in, the, in the wake of disobedience, this locust swarm comes in and there's no vine. And when there's no vine, everyone, uh, like God has everyone's attention when there's no vine. Because if there's no vine, there's no wine. If there's no wine, who mourns if there's no wine? Everybody mourns. The farmer mourns. Why? Well, because my source of income is gone. Uh, the, the, the bride mourns. Why? No wine at the wedding. That's this story. Uh, the, the, the priests mourn. Why do they mourn? Because wine is used in the sermons of worship. And the drunkard mourns, obviously, right? Because without wine, then he can't be who he is, which is drunk. So, so <clears throat> God has everyone's attention uh, when there's no wine. And, and uh, then Joel is articulating, once there's no wine, this is not just about wine. This is about you as a nation Israel. You've lost your capacity to bless. Might as well be said of the church in the West today too. Church is dying. And we don't like to talk about it, but it's true. Like, like on the net, the church is on decline in the West, in Europe and in North America. 
Not in South America, not in Africa, not in Asia, but where we live, church is dying. We're failing to meet needs. We're failing to help people follow Christ. For whatever reason, we're out of wine. We've largely lost our capacity to bless. We're answering questions nobody's asking. There are many reasons. But it's a problem. Now, here's the thing. All of us would like to avoid running out of wine, just like that couple. We want to avoid failure. We want to avoid want. We want to avoid weakness. But hear this. Since we know the end of this story, we know this. We know the best wine is a result of transforming a situation that is, that is desperate, a situation of emptiness, a situation of, of loss, of like total loss of capacity. On the far side of that comes the best wine. And so the, like we want to avoid at all costs uh, the, the being out of wine. We want to avoid it. And we try, we go to great lengths in our culture to avoid running out of wine. It might be said, in fact, that we seek at all costs to avoid the very state of, of being, which is the state of emptiness, that is needed for us to fully receive Christ. Like, I will not receive what I don't think I need, and if I avoid emptiness, I will never know my need. So this is a problem. If you don't know emptiness, if you've never experienced emptiness, if you don't believe you will ever know emptiness, if you think that your spiritual, emotional, physical, financial wine vat will always be filled to overflowing, if that's you, you can leave now. The rest of the sermon isn't for you. But here's the thing. Uh, all of us find the moment when we run on empty. And even those of us who think that we're not running on empty right now, I would respectfully say, well, you may think you're full, but what you're giving me is uh, two-buck chuck. Do you know what I mean by that? Like this cheap wine from uh, Trader Joe's that is kind of mass-produced and uh, like it's just not, it, it, it damages the name wine at a, at a level, right? And, and, and you, all, you, may think, all, you may think that you're, yeah, and here's, here, so here's what we do. Like if we change the definition of wine, then our vat is full. So marriage isn't intimacy anymore. It's just not getting divorced. And, and, and uh, you know, being spiritual isn't using your gifts and following Jesus fully and laying down your life. Being spiritual is going to church and, and you know, taking notes and dropping a couple bucks in the plate. And, and having meaning in your vocation uh, isn't uh, being a blessing at work so that you are literally the presence of Christ in a world filled with consumerism and you're seeking to redeem Amazon and Microsoft and Swedish and, and, and Kaiser and Seattle schools and all, like we're, we're there to redeem. And no, we're not. We're there for paycheck. Time for money. Look, if you change the price tags and you call soda wine, then no, you're not running on empty, but neither are you being what God made you to be. A blessing. So that's, that's the challenge, right? Because we're not just called to get by in life. We're not called to be spiritual consumers or consumers. We're called to be rivers of living water flowing out into a thirsty world, offering nothing less than the life and joy and hope and meaning and purpose that is Christ. That's the life for which we're created. There was a, I traveled this week with a couple of guys. We took a day trip down to some camps 
just south of Seattle, uh, to brainstorm future ministry ideas. What can we do as a community, as a church, and as the larger body of Christ in Seattle, what can we do to heal marriages? What can we do to address addiction? What can we, what can we, what can we do to equip people to uh, uh, deal addic- uh, effectively with the homelessness and addiction problems that are ravaging our city? How can, we, how can we help young people move from youth to adulthood in ways that are meaningful and redemptive and, and create markers that are, that are life-changing? So I'm with these two guys, and we're on this tour, and they're, and they're thinking about the future, and they're brainstorming, and they're talking, about, they're talking about grants and programs and working with the military and pre-deployment and post-deployment and ministry to chaplains and ministry to pastors. And it's this kind of life-giving, energizing day. And I get, just got to tell you, the two guys who put this tour together are both battling kind of life-threatening cancers. <laughs> and so th- to me, they're an example of being wine. Does this make sense? Like, they're not, they're not just kind of redefining their life as survival is a win. No, 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 no. Until my last breath, I will bless. That's wine. And if that's wine, some of us are running on empty. So that's the situation. Now, uh, the dialogue here. So there's no wine. As the party goes on, they run out of wine. Mary says uh, to Jesus, they have no wine. And, and the way she says it, it's clear that Mary knows Jesus has a capacity to fix the problem. And she's wanting to fix the problem. She's a mom. She's empathetic. It's awesome. Then look at Jesus' response. Woman, what do I have to do with you? What kind of a response is that? First of all, uh, let me make something clear. When he says woman, it's not a derogatory term the way it is today. Do you understand? Like, what I mean by derogatory is this. Like when the husband goes, woman, give me a beer. Don't ever say that. <laughs> right? Get your own beer. A, thank your wife for living. B, w- wash your feet. C, come on. Di- different sermon. But anyway, this is not derogatory. This is not derogatory. It's a, it's a term of respect, woman. As it should be today, actually. So that's fine. But then, what do I have to do with you... That's, in the Greek language, it's an emphatic interrogative, which simply means this. Here's what Jesus is saying. What? In just that way. What? In other words, uh, he, he follows that with the phrase, my hour is not yet come, which reveals that Jesus always looks at what he's doing at two levels. There's a very practical level here. We're out of wine, and there's a cosmic significance as well. So when he says, my hour is not yet come, Remember Genesis 49, Judas, uh, uh, Jacob's prophecy regarding Judah, the prophecy that the throne will not depart from Judah. Look at the next verse in Genesis 49. He, Christ, ties his donkey to the vine and washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. In other words, Jesus sees himself as the vine with a definite article, which means he sees himself, <clears throat> excuse me, sees himself as a source of life and healing and blessing and joy. And because all these things are represented in the Bible by wine, here's what Jesus is saying. It's not yet my time to reveal myself as the source of all life. That'll come. Crucifixion, resurrection. But this is not my hour to reveal myself in that way. No. Uh, At that time, it will be evident 
at that time that the best wine is kind of the, the life that comes out of death because anyone who knows wine knows this. What makes wine wine is the grape must be what? Crushed. Has to be. So we began with this definition of the word crushed. There is no wine without the crushing of the grape. If you don't crush the grape, all you have is the grape. And grapes are good, but my bias, wine is better. Right? Grapes are good, wine is better. So the grape needs to be crushed in order for there to be the wine. Without the crushing, no grape. So Jesus is saying here, Isaiah 53, 5, because of our iniquities, he was literally, here's the word, crushed. He was crushed. So Christ must be crushed. The crushed grape undergoes this transformation only comes after death, just like Christ undergoes a transformation only through death, so that he rises from the dead with resurrection life and now imparts that life to us so that we now might walk in newness of life, all that stuff. Not yet, is what Jesus is saying, not yet. So this is a timing thing. The story has to do with the cross and the resurrection, which will come eventually, but now is not the time for him to undergo the suffering and death that will lead to the transformation of resurrection life. And this, if it's true for Jesus, it's true for us. Why? Because if we go back to Ecclesiastes 3, what do we remember? There's a time for everything. And so in your life, in your life, there's a time for you to be the grape and a time to be crushed and a time to be wine. And, and don't take that terribly literally like an accountant or an engineer, but listen poetically just for a minute here. Uh, because we're always in various areas of our life. Sometimes we're the grape. Sometimes in some areas we're being crushed. And then in other areas we're manifesting the newness of life that comes on the far side of crushing. You may be killing it financially, but you have cancer. So, so financially, you're the grape. <laughs> but regarding your health, you're in the midst of being crushed. Or you may be uh, you know, doing well physically, but, uh, but your marriage is a mess. And so you're being crushed in emotional intimacy right now. Like all of us at various times, we have these areas <clears throat> of crushing. Why? So that on the far side of the crushing, resurrection life can be displayed through us. Not just marriage, intimacy, right? Not just health, healing. Not just money, generosity, right? Not just, not, not just my, own, my own emotional well-being, but my capacity to have joy and serve others. All of that requires crushing, but listen, the crushing comes at the right time. That's the thing. And so, Paul articulates that not only did Jesus die for us, but Philippians 3, he says he died for us so that we could die with him, right? And so, so all of us have crosses to bear, so to speak, some of which uh, we have the opportunity to either pick up like Jesus did or, or uh, ignore, in other words, some crosses, uh, are, are, um, they're not really optional, but we can choose not to, not to take them, but it's our choice. You can give or you can not give. You can have that hard conversation you know you need to or you can avoid it. You can forgive that person or you can hold bitterness. Uh, you can make wise sexual choices or you just follow your appetites. Yeah. But, but if you choose the high road, there's some self-denial involved. That's a cross. And on the far side of the cross is good wine. So some cross you get to choose. Others you don't get to choose. Uh, oh, oh, you woke up and you're unemployed? <laughs> that's a cross. Handed to you. Cancer, a cross. 
Marriage implosion, a cross. Death of a child, a cross. Miscarriage, a cross. And so here's the thing. Uh, either way, whether it's a cross you choose or a cross that's chosen for you, there's a time for crosses. But hear me, not all the time. Because here's why that's important. Prevailing in our world are two paradigms regarding suffering. There's a group of people that seek at all costs to avoid suffering. We try and build walls around our assets and, and live so stinking carefully in order to never be rejected, never suffer, never have a hard conversation. That's wrong. Like, the good wine is on the far side of the cross. So get over the illusion that you can build your walls high enough, have enough insurance, eat enough healthy greens and fish oil to like bomb-proof your life. No, you can't. That's on the one side. But on the other side, equally damaging is a group who, who like so embrace the cross that they've stopped believing in the, in the far side of the cross and the resurrection glory that comes out of it and they, people wallow in suffering. And they play the victim card. And, they, and, and rather than moving through it, they get stuck in it and they self-medicate and they create a downward spiral of, of addictive behavior and sorrow and shame and suffering. And they're in a prison. And our city's filled with that right now. It's called addiction. So look, uh, when you're being crushed, there's a time to be crushed. Don't avoid it at all costs. When, the, when it's your time, embrace it. But don't live there. Allow Christ to shepherd you through it to resurrection life. It's a big deal. Now we come to the solution. This is Act 3, right? Act 1 is, is kind of the thing, and Act 2 is the dialogue. Act 3 is the solution. The problem, the dialogue solution. So the solution, uh, so my hour's not going to come, and then Jesus, uh, Mary says to the servants, uh, hey, whatever Jesus says, do it. And there's six water pots there that's for the Jewish custom of purification. In other words, uh, symbolically, you're cleansing yourself. When you come in, you stick your hands in these water pots, you wash your hands, right? While the pots have to be empty, Jesus says, fill the water pots with water. So they fill them up, and then he says, draw some water out and take it to the head waiter. So the servants took it to the head waiter. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, didn't know where it had come from, but the servants knew, the head waiter then calls the bridegroom and says, hey, everybody serves the, the, the good wine first at a party. This is kind of conventional wisdom. Serve the good wine first. But then when people have drunk freely, and we all know what that means, right? When people have, like, people have been drinking and now their senses are not quite as acute. Do you, am I making sense to you, Right? Then you bring out the two-buck stuff, right? At the very end of the party. Because who cares by then, right? Oh, no, he, this is what he says. Instead, you save the best wine to the end. Boom. This is really significant. Now, sorry, a couple things. First of all, local implications. S some servants react with obedience to the words of Jesus. Oh, oh, uh, this is what Jesus says. Oh, they're out of wine? So he goes to the servants, hey, Try, try this. Go fill the stone water pots with water and then take a cup of that and hand it to the head waiter. Now, it, just put yourself in the servant's shoes for a moment here. 
Really? Oh, uh, Mr. Headwaiter, I know there's a problem. Oh, here, we have the solution. Try this. Are you kidding me? Uh, no, that's what he's told to do. And so what happens is the servants are obedient, and because they're obedient, something entirely ceremonial is now infused with life and becomes a context for transformation. And then the third observation simply is that the best wine comes after the disaster of running dry. So, so the servants are obedient. The obedience becomes a context for transformation and the best wine comes at the end. What are the cosmic implications of this? First of all, uh, the obedience of faith is always the path of transformation. Oops, always. In other words, you are never... You're never transformed by sitting in here uh, taking notes. Now, I'm glad you do, but that is never the context for your transformation. Transformation happens because God has spoken to you and you've heard, and God has said, here's the next step that I have for you. And it's your obedience that results in your transformation, not your knowledge. And boy, we need to hear this in the West because we've begun to equate knowledge with maturity. And so we, have, you know, we think if we teach our kids to memorize the Bible and we send them off to a club and they give, fill their jag with stickers, they're going to be holy. No. It's like wrong. It's great. Know the word. But know the word to what end? That you might hear from God. To what end? That you might step in. Because <laughs> if you don't step in, there's no transformation. That's just what he's saying. So God is speaking to us. Stay. Change jobs. Uh, abstain, indulge, open your door, or stay home tonight. Speak, be silent, confront, forgive. Turn off the TV and eat supper at the table. Talk to your spouse with a hard conversation you haven't had yet. Cross the social divide. Whatever God is telling you to do, that's your next step. And if you don't take that step, then you're avoiding the crushing that creates the wine. It always, there's always a step. The second thing that we see here in this story is that the pots for ceremonial cleansing are a picture of our need to be cleansed in our own lives from, from sin, right? And, and what's interesting is uh, these are ceremonial pots and Jesus is trying to teach us something here significant. He's trying to teach us that the, it's not, the, the, the most important thing isn't the ceremony, but what the ceremony is filled with. And this is a big deal. Why? Because what we're doing right now is a ceremony. It is, right? We come here, we sit, we sing, we listen, we pray, we respond. Many weeks we take um, communion. Weekly in the evenings we take communion. It's a, it's a ceremony. And, and uh, over the years, all, and through, you see it many times in the Bible, when things aren't going well, spiritual leaders think we've we got to fix the ceremony. What's wrong with the ceremony? And in John 4, a couple chapters from now, the Samaritan woman says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, there's a kind of a theological debate going on about uh, what's the best ceremony in which to worship you, right? Is it this mountain here in Samaria or is it this mountain here in Jerusalem? This mountain or that mountain? And what does Jesus say? Does anybody know? He says, hey, I don't care what mountain. Doesn't matter. This mountain, that mountain. Here's the, the, the important thing is in the ceremony. The important thing is this. What's in the ceremony? Are you filling the ceremony with Christ? Look, 
I'm looking for worshipers who worship me in spirit and truth. That's the end of the story. And like we do this today as well. We have debates about the container. Like what's the best container in which people can find Christ? Is it this, like is it, is it Hillsong music or hymns? Is it, is it denominational churches or free churches? Is it Catholic or Protestant? Is it East or West? Is it Celtic or Evangelical? We think this matters. It doesn't matter. <laughs> what, what, you could be in any of those and, and be empty or filled with Christ. That's up to you. So are you, like, are you meeting Christ in the ceremony or is this just something you do? And I know that uh, in our culture, we tend to, man, we go, oh, you know, the church is growing. Many pastors' conferences are talking about containers. How are you going to change a container to make it more, you know, more effective? And we think that if we change, you know, tweak the music and get some nice, you know, shade-grown fair trade coffee out there and cool mugs that we give to visitors and, you know, hire a fashionista to dress the pastor so he looks hipster and all that stuff. We think, you know, if we just do it right, then, you know, everyone will come. I'm here to tell you, no. Doesn't matter. I can dress like this, it's okay. We can have Folgers out there. We don't, but we could, right? We can have, we can have no acoustics. We can lose power. We can lose our building. And Christ still shows up if you bring Christ. But if you don't, we've got nothing other than a pot. That's what the text is telling us. So, you know, as we close, there's two ways you can be running on empty this morning. You can just be going through the motions. Yeah, you're here, but uh, you're not... If someone said, are you intimate with Jesus, you'd say no. I do these things, but I, I really want intimacy with Christ. I want to know Christ. I want Christ as my best friend. If this is just a show for you, my encouragement is, you pray today, God, would you fill this ceremony that is my life, the ceremony of my marriage, the ceremony of my work, the ceremony of my, of my gathering, would you fill my ceremonies with your presence? Because I don't want to just go through the motions. I want to be nothing less than the presence of the best wine for a thirsty world. So some of you are going through the motions. Some of you are crushed in the moment right now. Crushed with cancer. Crushed with infidelity. Crushed with the staleness of a marriage that is still together but not working. Crushed with body image issues. Crushed with failure. Crushed with job loss. Crushed. Yeah? I have a good word. The best wine is right around the corner. And so here's your prayer. God, thank you. Not for the crushing, but thank you that you use the crushing to create the wine that is Christ. I just give myself to you, Jesus, and I receive all that you want to shape in me as a result of this crushing. And I can tell you as a pastor, too many times to count, people have said to me, I thank God, for, not for the cancer, but for how God used the cancer. I thank God for how God used the difficulty in our marriage. I thank God for how God used, in my case, the death of my dad. I thank God. Why? Because in the crushing the wine is created. And there is no wine without the crushed grape. So if you're crushed this morning, thank God for how God will use it. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that uh, 
In a fallen world, grapes are crushed. But the beauty of the crushed grape is that it creates the wine. Thank you. And just with everybody uh, with their eyes closed, if you're in a season of crushing right now, I just want to be able to offer a prayer for you. Would you just raise your hand if you're in a season of crushing right now? Yeah, okay. Father, I want to pray for these. And thank you for the wine that awaits them. May they cling to you and find you filling the container that is their life. And there are some of you this morning, who there are, there are parts of your life, the ceremonies of work or worship or maybe devotional life or vocation that are feel, they feel empty. You go through the motions. If that's you this morning, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Yeah, yeah, okay, yes. Father, I pray for these saints as well. Lord, would you fill the ordinariness of life? Give them eyes to see your presence and to know intimacy with you. We thank you as we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.